The search for Gilbert Bowen and Roy Collins, now believed to have been last seen with Emmett Myers, mass killer, is being stepped up by the hour. Helicopters are working in shifts, scouring the entire area from El Centro South to the Gulf of California. The planes are maintaining close liaison with the ground, reporting isolated cars and campers. The Mexican police have now joined this strange race against death. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Film and Water Podcast, proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, Rob Kelly. Joining us once again is our pal, Michael Cronenberg. Michael, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Rob. We are, of course, here to talk about a great film noir, The Hitchhiker from 1953, starring Edmund O'Brien, Frank Lovejoy, and William Tallman, directed by Ida Lupino. Uh, This is a really terrific movie, a little uh, great slice of 50s film noir. The plot is pretty basic. It's two fishermen pick up a psychotic escaped convict who tells them that he intends to murder them when the ride is over. And that is, that, that's basically The Hitchhiker, but this is a terrific little movie. And Michael, like, why did you want to talk about this? Um, a lot of it is because of the, lo- the great people involved in it and William Tallman's performance in this movie, which is just stunning because, you know, I only knew him and a lot of people know him as Hamilton Berger, the prosecutor who lost every single case against <laughs> Perry Mason, you know, the, the, the born loser. But he is extraordinary in this movie. And um, the more I read about this movie and the fact that it is based on a true story, the story of Billy Cook, uh, he even looked kind of like Billy Cook, even though there was, a, there was an age difference. Billy Cook was like 22 years old when this was going on. But they looked a lot alike. And it's just a, a frightening performance by, by, by Tallman. Uh, and, and, and great work also by Frank Lovejoy and um, Edmund O'Brien, but mainly Tallman and Ida Lupino. Uh, how she went from being a starlet, you know, to becoming like a major force for a period of time for women as, as, as filmmakers. And she really opened that door. Yeah, I mean, the, the fact that a woman is directing uh, any movie, let alone this kind of very male, you know, th- there is, there's no women in this movie except for a small child. Uh, this is a, you know, very hard-charging, very masculine movie. And the fact that you had a woman directing it is pretty remarkable. Now, she, of course, produced the movie with her, her husband, Collier Young. Oh, and, she wrote, and she wrote the screenplay. And she wrote the screenplay. Uh, now, apparently, Ida Lupino... The reason she directed the movie is because the original director got sick, Elmer Clifton, who I'm not familiar with. And so she took over. Now, she had directed some movies previously, but nothing like this, nothing that was kind of hard, again, a hard film noir kind of movie. She had made, quote-unquote, message pictures before this. Uh, and they were, they were largely and they were largely about women. And I know that from what I read, she had trepidation about taking on this movie because of it was it was an all-male cast and it was there were no women going to be in the story so she was concerned that it would it would be looked upon for she, she would be she would have a problem moving on to the kind of pictures that she wanted to do which were like you mentioned the message pictures that were largely about women yeah there's one movie she did previous to this i forget the title of it but it's about a like a young girl that gets pregnant out of wedlock like she was doing a lot of those kinds of movies and you know uh from what i've heard of them they sound really terrific i mean just just by the sheer fact that that you had a woman directing movies in the 40s and 50s you're going to get a perspective different than any other movie out there because she was really one of the few people ever to be doing it. She had a terrific career. We can get into all that after we talk about the movie. So one of the, you mentioned William Tallman. He is really wonderful in this movie. I mean, it's bad enough that these poor guys 
pick him up and he you know basically points a gun at them through the rest of the movie and forces them to drive him all the way into Mexico. He's also sadistic. I mean, he, he tries to pit the two guys against each other. He keeps talking about how either of them could escape if they would go off on their own. But they refuse to do that. They, they want to stick together because they're friends. And so he keeps taunting them. At one point, he kind of uses them as target practice. I mean, he's not just a killer. He's trying to mess with their heads, which is really sort of what takes up sort of the majority of this movie of as they drive through this countryside, not countryside, drive through the desert. Uh, which, as critics have noted, looks looks just as ominous and foreboding as any of the cityscapes you would see in a typical film noir. Once he kidnaps them, he then takes it upon himself to kind of try and drive them apart as well. Yeah, and he does that from the first thing he asks them. He asks them, what they what, what do you do? And uh, Edmund O'Brien's character is a mechanic at a garage, or he, runs a, he owns a garage, and uh, Frank Lovejoy is a draftsman. So he immediately says... To Frank Lovejoy, oh, you're smarter. Right. So um, it, it it's even to that to the idea of like what your what your position is in society is your job. You know, he's even playing on that. Uh, it's almost like taking it out. He's taking it out on the world. You know, and through these guys. You know, and and he's he's a he's a hard luck character, just like Billy Cook was, who he was based on. Uh, it was a guy who was just abandoned. He talked about he was abandoned, and he, he even said, I think uh, he, he mentions that his parents took one look at his face and just wanted nothing to do with him. And basically, Billy Cook, who he's based on, was was also abandoned as a child. Yeah, I mean, Tallman has this great. There's a there's a wonderful visual hook that Tallman has in that he has one sort of uh, damaged eye which never closes. So there's, and it's always kind of drooped down a little. It's a nice little subtle makeup, but there's this great sequence where they go to sleep around a campfire, and he says to them, don't try and run away because you'll never know whether I'm sleeping or not because he has the one eye perpetually open. And, of course, the two guys are sort of looking at him, and they're trying to figure out, is he asleep? Is he not asleep? But it's, it's unfathomably creepy because, you know, you're like, well, I, I don't know whether he's really looking at me or not, whether he's trying to sucker me in. Uh, by pretending he's asleep, it's a it's a great little hook. It's the it's the it's the total nightmare of the hostage. The nightmare of the hostage is that you can't get away because the guy's always looking at you. But oh, he's got to fall asleep at some point, so I'll get away then. And you can't. And again, based on the truth, because the interview with the two two hunters said, and this is true, Billy Cook had that eye, had that kind of damaged eye that he couldn't close his lid all the way. So those hunters said that they didn't know when he was asleep because that eye was always open. And he mentioned that to him. He always had the gun on them. So really, you know, Ida Lupino based so much of this on the tr- on, on what was going on. And, the, and what I read was that she wanted the story to be Billy Cook and that the Breen office, which was the censorship for Hollywood, uh, would, said that they would never approve this film. They would never approve it for, for release because uh, they felt that if she used the real name and if she real, used all the real facts of what happened, which, which included Billy Cook killing a family, killed um, a, a wife and two small children and a dog, that uh, she was glorifying the, um, Billy Cook and making him into some kind of like hero or something. And um, so she had to deal, she had to deal with that, but she went actually to interview um, Billy Cook in prison. Um, to get his permission, and I think she paid three thousand dollars 
to him, I guess wherever that money went to, to to get him to sign off on uh, permission to, uh, to 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 use his story. But she ended up having to abandon that. But you know, being the great filmmaker and storyteller that she is, she got in quite a bit of the truth in there beyond the Breen office, so that she could she could tell the story the way she wanted. Do you think that's partly because the film was so low budget that it just kind of flew under the radar a little? Do you think that if this had been done at a major studio, she probably, well, she wouldn't have been directing it if it had been done for a major studio, but if it had been, you think it just wouldn't have, we wouldn't I have been able to do so. that? I think so, but I think a lot of film noir movies, even the ones that are the, the ones that were done by by some of the the bigger studios, the screenwriters and the directors were so clever and so smart that they were able to get some of the subtext and some of the interesting storylines beyond the Breen office. Was it because the Breen office was inability to be able to see beyond? what was written and not understand subtext and stories, <laughs> you know, which I have I happen to believe is part partially true or just, you know, it was just the great creative efforts of some of these filmmakers, including herself. But, um, you know, she, she got that stuff in there. She, she, she succumbed to what she had to, to, to the brain office, but she got in a lot of stuff, um, that was the, the true story of, uh, of that incident. It's amazing how sort of fatalistic uh, Tallman is in this movie, or Emmett Myers, I should say, because he tells both the guys, uh, he literally says, you're going to die, it's just a question of when. So, I mean, he doesn't even give them any hope that they're, right. gonna, that they're, going, that they're ever going to escape this. He's just like, okay, right. you're going to drive me down to Cal- you're going to drive me down to Mexico, and then when I get free, I'm going to shoot you both. Well, it's almost like, well, why would I bother? Why would I do anything then for you? Now, of course, they're they're gambling. He's not going to be able to do it, but it, it's he really is a pretty a pretty loathsome creature in this movie. And I love the whole bit about where he can't speak Spanish. And as they go on, you know, they keep meeting all these these people on the way down the, on the Mexican border. And it's one of the other guys can speak Spanish, and he has to keep saying, "Don't try and sneak anything in." Uh, while you're talking to these guys in another language I can't understand. And you keep hoping that maybe they'll do that. Like the guy will, you know, maybe say that, but he never does. He always kind of just plays it straight. But I love that whole angle too, that, that, that Emmett is completely incapable of communicating with any of these people that he's running into. And he's got to sort of trust these two guys who he's threatening to kill that they're going to kind of be straight with him. I love that, that whole angle. I mean, the, the, the screenplay finds for a movie that's only 71 minutes and it's again fairly straightforward once they you know once they pick him up that's the whole movie it finds a lot of sort of material to, to dig through in terms of like finding fresh ways to kind of keep the story going right and and but with the basic the basic story is is that it's a drive and a, it's a, it's it's they're traveling to the death supposedly the death of these two guys who have been taken over by 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 Tallman's character, um, I I think that it's the definition of noir. What you were just saying, how fatalistic it is, and uh, how dark it is. Despite again, and you mentioned this before, and other people have talked about this before, the setting of the film, which is most film noir, ha- takes place in the city. Um, and here's and look, none of these directors, as they're making these movies, knew what film noir was. I right. mean, film noir was 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 identified as this by the French much later after all of this had occurred. But, you know, it's it just a tip of the hat to 
Ida Lupino for being able to create this kind of film in the deserts of in the desert of southern, you know, California and, and Mexico. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's true. Um, visually, I think this has a, a lot going on. I mean, first of all, it was the DP was Nicholas Musaraka, who was RKO's in-house guy, but he did a lot of the Val Lute movies, and he really knew how to. You know, you talk about that film noir is mostly takes place in cityscapes, and that's that was sort of Musaraka's. You know, that was his specialty, but he obviously knew how to light things perfectly well in this sort of flat expanse. Yeah, those those scenes in the car, which are really dark. I mean, he knew how to work in in the dark. He 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 did, like you said, the Val Luton, he did the Cat People films. But he did arguably the greatest film noir of them all. He 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 was the photographer, director of photography for Out of the Past. Right. Um, right, right. And uh, he also did Spiral Staircase Staircase and he was um his lighting of uh, William Tallman in this film is, is is really incredible. I mean, Emmett Myers is just is he's frightening. He's frightening, and I think a lot of it has to do with the way Musaraka lit him and fo- photographed him. Yeah, in the back seat, like there's the, the you know the front. We we get a lot of shots of right through the windshield of the two guys in the front seat of of Roy and Gilbert, and then in the back you've got Emmett, and it looks like the whole back part of the car is just draped in shadow except for just Emmett's face popping up through one little key light on him and there's a couple of things there's a great moment where there's like a push in like over the dashboard over the shoulders of the two guys right in on Tallman and it's like it's such a great shot and there's a couple others there's, there's another one where they do the uh, the target practice there's a great push in on Tallman there like it's there's Ida Lupino had you know a real visual flair. I mean, I have not seen any of her other movies. I have seen some of her TV shows, and we can we'll talk about that shortly. But uh, she had a real distinctive visual style, and I almost wonder like was she trying to kind of I don't want to say show off because I don't I don't think it it feels like that. But it's I wonder if she was you know she had to establish herself probably way more than any other male director would have had to. And I think she had a lot of she learned from a lot of different people, all the great directors that she had worked under. I think she I think she probably took a lot of mental notes and she decided that she took things from this one and that one. She actually got her career as a director started when Nicholas Ray on on, on Dangerous Ground, the movie right. on Dangerous Ground, another film noir, starring co starred Robert Ryan, Nicholas Ray got sick and <laughs> She, she took over, and she she was the director for several days, and I think that's what kind of put the um, kind of the hook in her to start directing. But that's where she got her start. It's a pretty good place to start, you know, directing, you know, Robert Ryan and 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 a Nick Ray film. Right, and that's that, that one's even more unusual because she's in that movie. I mean, she, right. she started and and directed. It's kind of funny that she got all these gigs from the director falling sick. I almost wonder, like, you know, when she was taking on these jobs, is she looking at the director like, he doesn't look that healthy. Maybe there's a good chance right. I'm going to be able to get in on this guy. Right. Put something in the food. Yeah, exactly. As I was watching it, I watched it once many years ago, back when I worked at a video store, and I was just sort of watching everything. And I liked it a lot. The, the scene I remember the most was, as we talked about the campfire scene, where you don't know whether the guy's asleep or not. But uh, I rewatched it for this episode. And the thing that I sort of came away from is is that, like, outside of the plot, outside of it being about the true story, I mean, a rip from the headlines kind of thing, like what this movie is about. And I feel like this movie is really about like toxic masculinity because Tallman, uh, I keep calling him, it's Emmett Myers. The actor is William Tallman. Emmett Myers is a tough guy as long as he has the gun 
all of his toughness comes from the fact that he has a gun. And the minute that he loses his gun near the end of the film, he's, he kind of falls apart. And we even get a chance where Roy and Gilbert, they even get their licks in on him at the end when the, when the, the, the plan all falls apart. But it's like, it really is about a guy that can't really get anywhere unless he is packing heat. And I think that's, A, an interesting commentary in any movie, especially in a country like ours, which is so gun crazy. I mean, there's literally a movie called Gun Crazy. But especially coming from a female director to focus on a story that is so much about how men interrelate to one another versus their, about their, their toughness, you know, how tough they are versus when they're facing off against one another. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And I think it's, it's something that's been discussed in some of the readings about the movie that I've I've seen um, that that relation, the, the 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 relation between Myers and the the two hunters that he kidnaps, and then the friends, the relationship between the friends, and and how that is at the beginning of the film, and how that kind of changes over the course of time. Ed and O'Brien character kind of like really losing it because Tomlin's character just torments him, and he just can't handle it. He can't. He can't. He can't. Because he, at one point, he's screaming at an airplane that's circling over, um, you know, to to help them. Um, but that's 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 definitely something that I bet she wanted to explore, and that she she it was it was deliberate in her decision to go ahead and make the film when at first she was she was hesitant to do the movie because it had no women in it. Right. Interesting I, that how William Tallman and Frank Lovejoy, like they were not stars of the level of Edmund O'Brien. Edmund O'Brien was one of, I mean, for anyone who hasn't been too familiar with him, he had over a hundred credits uh, to films. He won an Oscar. He was in The Wild Bunch, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, White Heat, DOA. But he seemed to like kind of toggle back and forth between little B pictures and then these giant A movies, you know, the biggest of the big studio movies. And I, I wonder how they got him for this movie. This seems like something that they probably wouldn't have been able to afford him for. Maybe, maybe because he was never the star, and he was, you know, left at the chance to be the star of a movie. I don't know. I, I'm fascinated how they kind of got he, somebody of his stature. He really did take chances, though, in his career because he did. He directed a movie, uh, a noir that he starred in and directed, and called Shield for Murder, where he plays a low-life, dirty cop. I recommend it for anybody to see it. I'm not sure if it's available on YouTube. I know it's available. It just came out on DVD. It was re-released on DVD not that long ago, but called it's called Shield for Murder. And, uh, I saw it on TCM for the first time, and he's fantastic in it, and it's a pretty darn good j- directing job by him. Hmm. Yeah, I've never um, seen that one. And then if, but he was, he was also in, in, in DOA. Right. Which is, you know, the, you know, one of the one of the landmark noirs and um, all of those on uh, for pretty much a, a, a low budget. But you're right. Compared to Tom and compared to Frank Lovejoy, um, you know, Evan O'Brien certainly had a more distinctive career. Uh, Frank Lovejoy made some some <clears throat> good film noir films. Also, he he was in um, <clears throat> a movie called Try and Get Me, which is an underrated Noir that the Film Noir Foundation, who I work for, um, restored. And if you ever get a chance to see that movie, um, it's a fantastic film, and it's a great. It's a. It's a. Me- it's not only a film noir; it's a message picture. Hmm. Um, and it's uh, Lloyd Bridges is fantastic in it, and he was a really good actor. Frank Lovejoy. He's kind of like I guess a forgotten guy now, you know. Um, but uh, if 
if you go and look at look them up on on IMDb and and take a look. I actually wrote down a couple of more of his films. Um, yeah, well, he was also um, he was in In a Lonely Place with Humphrey Bogart. He plays Bogart's friend. So that's a terrific movie. Great movie, and one one of the great noirs also. And he was in a really crazy film that if I think it's on YouTube, I recommend for anybody to see. It's this bizarre paranoid communist film noir it's a million different things called shack out on 101 with terry moore i've heard of that movie i love that title it is campy crazy you won't even believe what you're seeing and it again short quick film i'm sure it's on on youtube but uh, that's a movie I really recommend for anybody to see. Um, you know, again, not a well-known film in, in any sense, like anything that some of the best stuff that uh, uh, Edmund O'Brien worked on. But um, it was it's it's a crazy little film. Okay. <laughs> I have to track that down. I've heard of that movie for years, and I just I know it from the title. I'm like, what a great title! But there's one thing I I do want to mention about Edmund O'Brien, just as a fun little piece of trivia. He died in 1985, but he has a film. Scheduled for release in 2018. Written on the wind, right? The other side of the wind. Oh, the other side of the wind. That's the Wells film. Wells yes, Orson Wells's uh, last film, which remained un- has remained all these years uncompleted, but apparently Netflix is finishing it. So technically, the, his film is the, this Edmund O'Brien film is still in post production. So I love if you look at his IMDb credits. They stop in 1974, and then it says Other Side of the Wind 2018. (laughs) Right. And, you know, it's typical of Orson Welles that something has continued long, long after his death. You know, (laughs) Orson Welles, who could never either A, finish a project, or B, walked away from something, and someone else would take it over. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, he shot that yeah, movie that, when I was born. That, he was shooting that movie literally when I was born, and it was still not finished yet. Now, you mentioned uh, the, a lot of these movies are on YouTube. Uh, the Hitchhiker, if anybody is interested in this movie, and I, I think that you, you should see it. First of all, it's only 71 minutes, so it's very basically a long TV episode. It is out of copyright, and so it is on YouTube in full. You can watch the whole movie for free on YouTube. It wouldn't necessarily be the greatest picture in the world that you're ever going to get, but if you just want to kind of see it and, and, and try and appreciate it for you know, this little quick little film noir, you can watch it on YouTube uh, for free. And uh, we did want to talk about Ida Lupino. She went on. She directed some more uh, films after this. Uh, she did another movie with Edmund O'Brien, The Bigamist, and she did some other message pictures. But her career as a film director never really took off, and instead she moved on to television where she did dozens and dozens of things, and of course she dabbled as well as an actress, so she sort of went, went back and forth. Now, her most famous credit on television is probably something a lot of people don't know that she was involved with. Now, what, what is that, Michael? She did. She directed one episode of The Twilight Zone, and it's probably one of the best episodes. It's the episode called Masks, where the family is waiting for um, their patriarch, the patriarch of the family, who's incredibly wealthy, to literally die in front of their eyes so that they can inherit his money. And as a test, the the. And, it, and he's played by um, Brian Keith's father. But anyways, he has the family put on masks, if everybody probably remembers this episode. And um, when they take the masks off, these grotesque, ma- grotesque masks, their faces take on the masks, the, what the masks look like. It's a great episode. Oh, it is. It is fantastic. And she acted in The Twilight Zone, too. So she, again, went back and forth between that. Robert Keith, by the way. Robert the, Keith, the patron, correct. Who, of course, was in... 
uh, a gr another great little film noir called The Setup. And he was in um, uh, Battle Circus, with the, the uh, Korean War MASH movie uh, with Humphrey Bogart, which we've talked about here on the show. So, he, yeah, he was a great actor. But, yeah, that, I never knew that. I never knew that he did, that she directed Masks. And that is, that is, I mean, that's like top five Twilight Zone. Yeah, yeah, and she, I mean, she did, a, she she was doing everything, she did Bewitched, she directed episodes of Bewitched, she she directed, she was doing sitcoms, she was doing dramatic pieces, she did, I think she did some live television for, like, the craft theater, um, so she was very, very prolific and kept very, very busy, but I believe The Bigamist was the final um, major motion picture that she did. Uh, that was, you know, released in theaters. I think that she went oh, and, right. you know, Nick, Nicholas Musaraka was the same way. Uh, Musaraka, you know, I don't remember, I don't know what his final film, his final movie was, but he then had a pretty long, prolific career doing television, you know, doing the director of photography for television. I wonder why. I did want, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was just, I wonder why, I mean, I guess maybe just, you know, having a film career is tough, that why she so couldn't, she went into television and never was able to get another movie made. I wonder if that had anything to do with being a woman or it was just the natural, a lot of film careers just didn't pan out when you're a director. I, you know, and people fall in and out of favor at the time of the, of the studios. I mean, the studios had their own, were at their own whim to go ahead and, and, and hire people or, or get people work. And I don't know what happened to her production company. If there were problems with that, I, I, probably should read up a little a little more about her like one case with frank lovejoy was he um he ended up doing a private detective series uh and his hope was that that would become this long-running series it ended up lasting i think a season and a half maybe but his 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 thought was that that was where as of as far as making money is for for his career to continue going television was the answer was going to be the answer he ended up dying um fairly young um from a heart attack but um i think a lot of people as they got older and um musaraka being one with this just people on this film and ida lupino being another that they saw television as their way to continue working in their career she directed three episodes of gilligan's island <laughs> Which, yeah, yeah, yeah. She did sitcoms. She did a which, lot of the sitcoms. Uh, that kind of makes me sad. It was a little bit. The, the great Ida Lupino was sort of, you know, having to give direction, like hit him harder with the hat, Skipper. You know, <laughs> that kind of stuff. Just for the sake of accuracy, though, she did get one more movie uh, into the into the theaters in the '60s. She directed The Trouble with Angels. Oh, okay. Uh, with uh, yeah. with Haley Mills and Rosalind Russell of all things. So. She did get, and that movie I think was actually a fairly big hit. So I don't know why. Again, she lived into the into the eighties. She kept going. So you know, for the for the movies she did make, including this one, Hitchhiker, these are terrific movies. She had a she she was a quite a skilled director, and you know, quite a uh, and just the fact that she was writing her own movies. Again, we mentioned that she wrote the screenplay for Hitchhiker with Collier Young. Now she and him were married, but they were not married when they made the Hitchhiker. They had divorced by then, but I mean that's that's kind of interesting that you could sort of stay in business with somebody that you were once married to and make a movie with. But she was obviously kind of an interesting woman that she went on and kind of you know, did things her own way, and certainly was not, uh, you know, very very typical for a woman of, of her time. Yeah, I wanted to bring up just one thing about she. I I'd read in a, in, in a re recent book about her her career as a as a filmmaker and as an actress. She talked about going to interview Billy Cook, who was who the Hitchhiker was based on the serial killer. And I'm just going to read what what 
what her quote was about going going to visit him. She said, I wanted to see Billy and tell him I was making a film about him. With special permission from my buddies at the FBI, I entered San Quentin under strict security. I was allowed to see Billy Cook briefly for safety issues. I found San Quentin to be cold, dark, and a very scary place inside. In fact, I was told by Collie, Collier Young, not to go. It was not safe. I needed a release from Billy Cook to do our film about him. My company, Filmmakers, paid $3,000 to his attorney for exclusive rights to his story. I found Billy to be cold and aloof. I was afraid of him. Billy Cook had hard luck tattooed on the fingers of his left hand and a deformed right eyelid that would never close completely, and I could not wait to get the hell out of San Quentin. Exclamation point. <laughs> oh, man. I have to figure that... Uh... I mean, you know, the, the whole hand with the tattooed thing, whether that got, that's where the inspiration came for uh, Night of the Hunter. Yeah, Robert yeah. Robert Mitchum I, has that stuff on his hands in, in that movie. Right, and I sent you that, that photo of, of Cook's hand um, tattooed. And, of course, the first thing you think of is, is Night of the Hunter. Um, the other thing was that Cook had, uh, when he was arrested, Cook told the police uh, officer who was arresting him, I hate everybody's guts. And everybody hates mine. And then his motto that he told the guys that he, who, who he kidnapped, the two, the two hunters that he kidnapped, he said was live by the gun and roam. That was his motto for life. And the other, the other, little, the other little bit of trivia was that uh, Jim Morrison wrote the song Riders on the Storm, which is on the album L.A. Woman. And that is about Billy Cook. Oof, rough life, this this Billy Cook. I mean, it's sort of amazing is that Billy, by the time they made the, the Hitchhiker, Billy Cook had been executed. And right. they don't include that in this movie. We don't uh, we don't see uh, Tallman's character get executed. He gets, uh, spoiler alert, gets arrested, and he just gets carted off. And, I mean, presumably, obviously, you know, the whole point of the production code was to see the bad guy get punished. But it's I think it was interesting they didn't go that far far with it i guess they figured that the story once the guy's arrested we really want to stick with the two guys and it's they're the guys that uh, that's how the movie ends is with those two guys and that's really the story and even though tallman's character is the thing that drives the story it really it, it ends with the two friends which is yeah, who we're rooting for. yeah which go they they walk off you know kind of like with their arms around or at least i think uh frank lovejoy with his arm around Evan o'brien you know that you know just kind of like consoling him you know uh it is about their relationship too you know and, and how that changes from the time from the beginning of the film to the end of the film um one other bit of, did you notice on those credits uh the associate producer of this movie was christian Nibi, Nibi who oh, was right. director of the thing from another world Right, 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 right. Okay. Supposedly the director from Think from Another World. Other people might say, well, would probably argue that Howard Hawks directed right. Think from um, Yeah, I mean, The Hitchhiker, it's just a great little film noir movie. I love, you know, in these in this age of, like, all these movies you see in theaters are, like, two hours and 20 minutes, two and a half hours. It's it's cool to see a movie that kind of gets in, makes its point, and gets out. These All these movies were basically probably, you know, running as, you know, co-releases with other films and so they had to be short and this thing you know tells its story very quickly and effectively with a lot of great visual hooks the performances are all across the board are all really really good it's a great little movie and i'm glad you suggested we talk about it well you just mentioned it you just mentioned all of the same things 
uh, characteristics of the setup, which we previously spoke right, about. Right. It's a fast, quick film, uh, tells its story. God, you know, how much do I wish more movies would, these days, would tell their story, you know, under three hours, under two hours, possibly, because these movies show that it can be done. Yeah. I, if, if I saw a movie that was just terrific and just told its story quickly and effectively, and then I got out of the theater and saw that it was only like, you know, 80 minutes, I wouldn't feel ripped off. Maybe because movies cost so much now, you feel like you got to get more bang for your buck. But if I see a movie, if I see a movie that's two hours and it's got a half hour of kind of flabby, kind of just meandery stuff, I get, I get frustrated because I'm like, ah, I didn't need to see all this. But if you can tell your story in, you know, 71 minutes, more power to you. I mean, I wouldn't want. There's really, I wouldn't want to see any longer cut of the Hitchhiker. It works perfectly the way it is. Yeah, you didn't need to see it. Like you were talking about, you don't need to really see what happens. What ends up happening happens to Emmett Myers. That you know, you know, if like Billy Cookie ends up going to the gas chamber. I mean, that's you don't need that. And you know, it was to like cut out the superfluous stuff. Um, that's what these. And it just once again points to what a great filmmaker Adelapino was. And back to the setup, what a great filmmaker Robert Wise was. People knew what they were doing. Good on you, Ida Lupino. Good job. So uh, I think that's going to do it for The Hitchhiker. I don't think I have anything else really to say about it. Like I said, go, go watch it. It's 71 minutes. It's on YouTube. Could not be easier to watch. Go check it out. It's a, it's a great little film noir, and you will not be disappointed. So, uh, Michael, thank you so much for coming back to the show. I, I always enjoy kind of talking film noir with you. You're a big expert on that. And that, that gets into, like, where can people find your work around the Internet? And tell, tell everybody, like, some of the other things that you work on. Uh, well, I work with the Film Noir Foundation, and you can find them at filmnoirfoundation.org. And um, they put out a quarterly magazine, an online magazine that I design, and I design other things for them, uh, design web, some web, other websites for them. I also am producing a digital boxing magazine called Ringside Seat, uh, and you can, if you're interested in boxing, both boxing historically and today and what's going on. We've got some great writers. Uh, we're at ringsideseatmag.com. You can find me on Twitter at, at MW Cronenberg. Very cool. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming back on. I always enjoy talking to you, whether it's this show or Treasury Cats. I'm always happy to have you on. So Yeah, thanks, Rob. I really appreciate it. All right. Thank you, everybody. Of course, you can find all the back episodes of this show over on our website, which is fryingwaterpodcast.com. And we're over on Twitter at Film and Water Pod. So thank you, everybody, for listening. Until next week, that's a wrap. Having changed the company name to the more succinct filmmakers, Ida wrote and directed The Hitchhiker, shot entirely on location with only a shoestring budget. Smoke? No. What are you doing, Roland? Face front and keep driving. The Hitchhiker is a taut suspense thriller thought to be a classic of the film noir genre, characterized by dark shadows and a heightened sense of gritty realism. Keep going. She knew how to write a film, how to produce it, and how to direct it. She could get performances out of people. She also was able to demand respect and cooperation from a male crew. That wasn't an easy thing. She was full of mischief, very intelligent, very funny, kind of bawdy. And uh, she was 
laughing all that time, and, and she was physical. She'd hit the guys on the shoulder and stuff, and she was, she was not at all a, a little mouse.